0: Welcome to Onward in the Faith. My name is Ray Burns, and I have a podcast and blog that equip Christians to approach every area of life with a biblical worldview. It's April in the year 2020, which means that if you're listening to this, you've probably been stuck inside, possibly with other members of your family for a very long time. On one hand, it can be great to get that good family bonding time and really have no excuse to go out and about and instead just really get to enjoy spending time together. But for a lot of people, that also means that personalities are butting up against each other. People who haven't had to really exist together for long stretches of time are now basically confined to just a handful of rooms together. And when that happens, I'm sure a lot of you are starting to feel that kind of pressure and that strain of anger starting to bubble over, frustration, and just kind of being tired of certain individuals that you may feel stuck with. And although anger is always a good topic to discuss, I thought with everything happening right now, this might be a good time to really look at why is it that we get angry? And more importantly, through the grace of God, how is it that we can stop being angry? So even if you're not stuck indoors, even if you're an essential worker, or if your life just hasn't changed too much, this isn't going to be about the coronavirus. This is just going to be about anger, our hearts, and why we so desperately need Christ. Now, anger in our culture has kind of become a normalized thing. A lot of us have very cute names for our anger. We say we're grumpy, we've got a bad temper, someone has a short fuse, they were born that way, it's because of their upbringing. We have all these different words and excuses for our anger. And so when we use phrases like that, when we use explanations like that, we get the idea that we can't help being angry. That's just a character trait. It's natural to us. It's something that is inherent to who we are. We may even have someone who tells us about a time they were angry, and we will try to excuse it for them by saying something like, well, who wouldn't get angry in that situation? I'd be furious. You should have been furious. But really, it's important for us to understand what anger is, why we do it, and why it is that if we're going to keep pursuing God and following Christ, anger is something that we really, as Christians, have to deal with. Now, anger can take on some different forms, for a lot of us who try to be more civilized, it can often just take on the form of using our words to hurt other people. We may call someone stupid or an idiot, we may mock them, we may say things to purposely and obviously tear somebody down. Uh, sometimes though our words can be a little more subtle. And parents, we can unfortunately be very good at this, where we will make these snide little remarks that aren't, on the outside, aggressive. But they're designed to cut down our children, to make them feel bad, to let them know that we are not happy with something they've done or something they didn't do. So we'll say things like, well, I guess I'll be the one to take out the trash. Or, oh, you're leaving the house looking like that. We're not outright telling someone that we're angry or upset with them, but that's where that comes from. It comes from that same heart of wanting to tear someone down with our words. The anger most of us are familiar with is that very explosive kind of anger or someone who just lives in an angry state. So that might include things like yelling or throwing things. If you've ever tried to build one of those cheap pieces of furniture from somewhere like Walmart, you know the temptation to just pick it up and gently drop it and just let it explode and just let it be destroyed and be done forever. Uh, Unfortunately, this can also take on the form of physical abuse of human beings, whether children or a spouse or someone who's wanting to get into fights. We want to use our actions to let our anger out. And a form of anger that a lot of us don't really consider, but that can be just as damaging and destructive to our hearts and to our relationships with others, is that hidden kind of anger. So you might be someone who is very bitter at their life situation or has held onto a grudge for a long time, and you don't talk about it, but it's there and it affects you and it impacts how you think or how you talk about a certain person. You may have that kind of grumbling kind of anger where your spouse does something, your friend does something, a coworker does something, and you don't say it to anyone, but in your mind, in your heart, you're criticizing, you're mocking, you are what the Bible would call grumbling about a situation or a person. Some people may also take on for lack of a better word, a martyr complex. You will get this feeling of, oh, I am so taken advantage of, things aren't fair, I work so hard and no one appreciates me, and we will say things to ourselves that we're not attacking other people directly, but we are talking about how unfortunate our circumstances are and how unfair our lives are because of other things or other people and what they're doing to us. And if you're listening to this and you know you have anger problems, you know exactly what that looks like in your life. These are just very broad, general understandings of it. But the thing we have to realize about anger is that God hates anger. And if God hates it, we need to hate it. First of all, anger affects us personally. In Proverbs 25:28, it says, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. In other words, when we give into to our anger, when we let it control us, we are like a city with no protections left over. We are free to have our hearts and our minds and our lives tossed any which way because we are being controlled by emotions and not by Christ. Second is that it hurts our relationships with others. In Matthew 5, 21-24, Christ is talking about how the law says don't commit murder. But if we as Christians or as people say to our brother, oh, you're an idiot, or if we're angry at our brother, or whatever, if we have anger, Christ says that's like committing murder in our hearts, and that we are guilty of breaking that commandment simply for being angry. And so if we consider what kind of heart is required to kill a human being, and especially someone that we know, you know, a family member, a friend, whatever, consider the kind of heart that would be required for us to kill that person. And Christ says that when you're angry with them, even though you're not Going through with the act of murder, you have that same heart required to end their life. And that is how seriously Christ is taking anger in that instance. And then finally, our anger is going to hinder our walk with Christ. In Psalm 66 18, David is talking about if I had cherished sin in my heart, is what he says, or iniquity, the Lord would not have listened. The Lord would not have heard David's prayer if David had held sin kept sin in and hadn't repented of it and removed it from his life. And so we see that in all areas of our lives, it is so critical for us to take anger seriously and not just excuse it away, not just say, well, everyone gets angry. I'm not as angry as some people. At least I push my anger down and don't yell at my kids. We can find all kinds of ways to excuse it. But if we're going to grow closer to Christ, if we're going to live our lives in absolute surrender in every area, then our anger, as much as we don't want to deal with it, or even if we hate to admit that in a way we love our anger, it's something we have control of, it makes us feel better. If we want to surrender that, we have to start by taking our anger seriously. And the way to do that goes completely against what we're going to find out in worldly philosophy. Because the world is very big on, well, just change your behavior. Learn to count to 10. Find different coping mechanisms. The world is very good at finding ways to hide our anger. But as Christians, we know that it's not just our actions that are the problem. It's the hearts that are creating those actions. And so on the outside, it may seem like, well, I'm angry, so I need to deal with my anger. Anger is my biggest issue. And so we will try to learn coping mechanisms We will try to just learn self-control and learn to control our words and learn not to say that thing that we said. We may create a lifestyle change. If it's work that's making us angry, leave work. If it's our spouse making us angry, leave our spouse. We'll try to change our situations so that we are removing that thing that makes us angry, that person who makes us angry. But really, anger isn't our problem. Anger is a symptom of a much, much deeper issue in our hearts. If you think about it, like cancer. If you were to go to the doctor and you were to tell the doctor, doctor, I keep getting these headaches and these nosebleeds, what should I do? And if the doctor just said, well, let's give you some medicine to stop the nosebleeds, let's give you some medicine to stop the headaches. If those are gone, then you should be fine. But if the cause of those headaches and the cause of those nosebleeds was cancer, then while dealing with the symptoms would give us some relief, in reality, we're not doing anything to touch that thing that's killing us. And our anger is the same way. Anger is that headache or that nosebleed that is showing us there is something wrong. We don't need to deal with the anger. Learning how to control it and not let it control us is important. But once we've done that, we're not done. And instead, we need to see what is causing this anger to actually happen. And one of the best places to go for this, I think, is the book of James in chapter 4. And so we're going to hit several verses here, but I want to start off with... Chapter four, verses one and the first part of verse two, which says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source. Your pleasures that wage war in your members, you lust and do not have. So you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. What James is saying here is that you're angry, but anger isn't your problem. It's a warning sign of something else that's going on. And so what he's talking about here is he says, what's the source of fighting? In other words, what is causing fighting? What's the root cause? And he very plainly says, it's your pleasures. It's your desires. It's these things that you want that you're not getting. And of course, it's not wrong to want something and not get it. But it's how we respond to that that really shows us where our heart is in that situation. And so if we want a pure example of it, just think of any toddler that you have seen at a grocery store. When they want something, you know when they're unhappy about not getting it. Whether it's they want a candy bar or they want to ride in the cart or push the cart or if they don't want to leave or if they want to leave, they will scream, they will cry, they will stamp their feet and kick their legs and just collapse to the floor and make a huge scene. And what we're seeing there is that that child has a desire that they're not getting. And so what do they do? They respond with anger. Now, as adults, we think, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not like that. I'm so mature and grown up. But no, we still have that same heart as that toddler. We just have matured a little bit. It's a little more complex. We've learned to hide it a bit more, or maybe not. Maybe some people still are like that, where we yell and we scream and we throw things and we stamp around and we sit and we brood and we pout. Really, at the end of the day, we haven't grown up out of that childish mentality and that childish behavior. It just looks different for us now. And so what we see, whether it's a toddler or whether it's our lives or whether it's this church that James is writing to, is that the deep issue, the real cause of anger and fighting was idolatry. Now, that might sound weird because when we think of idolatry, we think of physical things, of carved idols and statues and pictures and and images of gods that people way back in the day would pray to instead of praying to God. And we think, oh, well, idolatry is not for today. That's we're we're so beyond that. We've advanced. We're much more mature and knowledgeable than them. But if we really consider the point and purpose of idolatry and above all, why God hated idolatry, we're going to see that idolatry may actually be worse for us today than it might have been in the Old Testament where we regularly read about it. Because at the end of the day, why would people pray to idols? Why would they carve images and offer food to them? They were doing it because a person had a need or they had something that they needed to be saved from. And so they were trusting in this God, in this idol, to come through for them and rescue them and give them that thing that they wanted. They were trusting an idol to meet their desires, their wants, those things that they felt they deserved to have but weren't getting for some reason. And if we look at that today, we can see that a lot of things in our lives are built around rescuing us from something or giving us something we think we deserve. So for a lot of us, we might watch things like Netflix or YouTube and things like that because we want to be saved from boredom. We will turn to social media because we want to be saved from boredom. We may want to find self-worth or value. We may want to look at the lives people are living and we want to, tear them down in our minds or look on them with jealousy and say oh I I wish I could live that life and so we live the life we want through how others are living. People might turn to substances like drugs or alcohol or even food in order to combat negative emotions in their life whether it's from some kind of past pain that they're dealing with or a current frustration in their life or a stress or an anxiety they have they will turn to a substance to deliver them to save them from their circumstances, from that thing that they are afraid of or that thing they don't want to deal with. And we can see idolatry in all sorts of things in our lives, in our spouse, our children, in money, in wanting a house or a car, in winning a sport, in getting a job promotion. Really, at the end of the day, there is no end to our ability as human beings to create idols out of anything. And this is kind of a new concept for a lot of people. And you may be listening And it's hard to wrap your mind around it. And this isn't an episode, unfortunately, for digging into what idolatry is. But just really consider if something in your life is an idol. And one of the best ways I've found to identify it is actually by a pastor named Brad Bigney. And if you want a book to read that can really help you understand idolatry, I recommend his book, Gospel Treason. And I'll have a link for that down in the show notes. But in that book, one of the things that I don't think is original to him, but that he talks about is three questions that can help us identify an idol in our life. So think of anything in your life, job, TV, food, whatever it is that you think might be something very important to you that you don't want to let go of. And just ask yourself three questions about it. The first question is, am I willing to sin to get this thing that I want? So are we willing to lie in order to go on certain websites or talk to certain people or eat certain foods that we tell our spouse we're not going to eat or to smoke or to drink or whatever? Are we willing to sin to get something that is important to us? The second question is, am I going to sin if I think I'm going to lose it? And this is a big one for people who have human relationships, because whether it's An older parent, our children, our spouse, our own health, our job, our house, our comfort, whatever. If there's something in our life where we were at risk of losing it, someone is sick and dying, we lose our money and our job and our house, whatever. How will we respond to that? Would we sin with anger, with anxiety, with fear, with whatever? Are we willing to sin in response to even just the idea of us losing something? Will we control our spouse? Will we dominate our children until they're 18 years old? Are we willing to do whatever it takes, even if it goes against God, in order to keep something in our lives? And finally, do I turn to this thing for refuge and comfort? In other words, when I'm sad, depressed, angry, worried, bored, wondering what to do with my life, Whatever thing comes up, is there something that we turn to to make ourselves feel better, safe, comfortable, distracted, whatever? And those are three excellent questions that can help us really dig in to understanding an idol in our life. Because when we understand those questions and when we see how they point to idolatry, we see that really at the end of the day, what an idol does is it replaces the role of Jesus Christ in our life. Because, as we've seen, these idols become so important to us that we feel like without them, we are less. We are missing. we are lacking. We are not safe. That's what idols are supposed to do for us. is they're supposed to make us feel like we have this thing that will save us from whatever fear we have or whatever need that we need to have met. Now, as we kind of understand idolatry, we can dig further into this passage in James and really see, with crystal clarity what their big issue was. And so at the end of verse two, he starts, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. In other words, they've first been accused of fighting because their desires weren't being met. And then he goes on to say, you don't have these things because you're not asking God for them. Now we might say, oh, well, I just need to pray and God will give it to me. No, because then James in verse three goes on and he clarifies, or you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your passions. So even if we're turning to God and saying, you know, I'm trusting God for this thing and he's not giving it to me and that's why I'm angry. Well, what we're doing then is we're saying, I'm asking God to give me an idol. I'm asking God to replace himself in my life with a job, with a spouse, with weight loss, with whatever it is that I'm begging God for, and when he's not giving it to me, I'm getting angry. Well, we can see why. Because if God were to give it to us, that may be the most destructive thing he could possibly do would be to give us the sinful desires that we have. For God to give us what we want to replace him would be disastrous for us, much more than how bad it is that we don't have it. And so we can see, though, that at the root of all this, at the very base of where these desires are coming from, is actually our own pride. And now we might think, well, that's weird, because being proud is when you think, oh, I'm so special, I'm so important. And yes, that is what pride is, and that's exactly what our issue is. Because when we really think about it, when we want something and don't have it, we are angry because we are entitled to it. We think that we are so special that because we want it, we should have it. We have a very inflated sense of who we are and how important we are, that we God should mold the entire universe around what our desire is. And if God won't, we are willing to sin rather than submit it to him. We are saying, God, you say no, but I say yes. That is pride. That is deep, broken pride that has no respect for the majesty of who God is. And instead, it makes us God because we are trying to say what is right. And so we'll see this entitlement with how we deal with others Because we'll say things like, well, I deserve a spouse who cooks dinner every night, who picks up after themselves, who says nice things and takes me on dates and gives me whatever I want in the bedroom. We pridefully think that if we want these things, we should have them. And if we don't, we're going to be angry. We're going to be bitter about it. We all think things like, I can't believe my kids aren't listening to what I said. I told them to do it. I am right. They should listen. And yes, obviously... God calls for children to respect and obey their parents, but if our heart isn't, they're in sin, they're disobeying God, but instead we're saying, they aren't listening to me, I told them what to say, It. how dare they disrespect me and my word, we can see our pride, we can see our entitlement, we can see our need to be heard and be important enough that people should just do what we say. And we'll also see this when it comes to our feelings of entitlement from God. And one of the most destructive beliefs in Christianity is actually wrapped up in this sense of entitlement. And if you've ever heard of the prosperity gospel or the health, wealth, and prosperity theology, this is 100% rooted in idolatry. Because at the core, it says, God will give me this thing because I want it. I deserve it because of verses I'm pointing to in the Bible. And because I deserve it, I'm going to get it. And so again, we see that we are telling God, God, you need to give this thing to me. I prayed, I gave money to the church, I did this or that. And because I put in the quarter in the slot, you're a cosmic vending machine who needs to give me what I want because I want it and that's all there is. And so at the end of the day, that's where we see when James says that you ask in vain to spend it on your passions or on your pleasures, that's exactly what he's talking about is that we pray, we want things, and we don't get them. And it's actually good for us because that would just reinforce this idea that I get what I want because I deserve it. And so understanding all that, now we can see that anger, at the end of the day, is really just a response to something we love being threatened. And on its own, that's not actually a bad thing. Because if we saw a dog attacking our child, we would respond with very violent anger. We would rip that dog off to protect our child. If someone is being cruel to our spouse, if someone at work or one of their friends is being mean to them, we get angry because someone that we love is being hurt. And that may not always be the wrong thing, depending on what our hearts are doing at that time. And we even see this in a broad sense, because if you've ever heard of a child that you've never met, maybe even in a country that isn't your own, if you've heard about a child being abused or mistreated or killed, we get angry and I think that we agree with God in that anger because we are in that moment, we are loving human beings and especially small human beings who may not even understand what's happening. But then at the same time, we are loving justice because we know that it is unjust for that to happen. And so because we love justice, we are angry that that is being broken and threatened. And we even see this with God because we know that God hates sin. We see it all throughout the Bible that he hates it. And Why? It's not because he just decided to pick something to be angry at and to make us have to obey or else. No. God loves his goodness and his justice and his mercy. He loves his glory. And on top of all that, he loves us. And sin does nothing more and nothing less than try to pervert or even destroy those things that God loves. Sin goes against his love. It goes against his justice. It tries to put glory on other things. We try to replace God with our own desires. And as we've all seen in our lives, sin tries to destroy us because that's just what it does. It's against God. If God is life, if sin is the opposite of God, then sin is the opposite of life. It brings our death. And so when we understand that, that we get angry because of something being threatened, and when we understand idolatry, we can put them together and see that, well, whenever we are angry, it's because one of our idols— is at risk, something that we are holding in our hearts and saying, this is going to save me. This is what I need to be happy, but it's being threatened, which means I'm going to be unhappy because my happiness is being threatened. And so we can understand that we get angry because our idols are at risk. And so the reason that we get angry really is that we want to destroy or attack or hurt that thing that is trying to hurt us and hurt our happiness. So why do we get angry at our spouse Or something our pastor says from the pulpit or our children or a parent or our friends or even that guy on the highway who cut us off because there is something in our hearts that we are saying, this will make me happy. I deserve this. And how dare that person do anything to threaten or upset it or to even question that I deserve this thing. And now if you're at the point where you say, okay, I've gotten angry in the past. I'm angry right now. I see that there's something, I may not even understand what my idol is, but I understand that anger isn't my problem, it's my pride, it's my entitlement, it's my sense of making myself my own God. What do I do about it? And this is where Christ offers something that the world simply can't give, because Christ offers himself as our solution. And so when we're trying to kill anger in our lives, when we're trying to remove it and get rid of it and hopefully never see it again, The first thing we need to realize is that anger isn't our problem. We can't try to treat our anger. Our anger isn't what's in our heart. Our anger is what comes out of our heart. And in James 4, verse 4, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And I love that he says the word adulteresses because it calls back to God's accusations towards Israel whenever they would fall into idolatry because they would get involved in all manner of wicked behavior. They would get into sexual sin. They would sacrifice their children to false gods. They would adopt all these customs of the people around them. But ultimately, what God would always say is that they were being an unfaithful spouse to him. They were seeking their pleasures in someone that they were not, in a way, married to because that's how God... Talks about them is in a marriage relationship. And so, in that same way, after James rails on this church for letting their desires, their passions, their wants, for letting their idols lead them to anger, he says, You are being just like Israel, who would go and worship these false gods, except you're doing it in your hearts now. And so, the best thing about when we realize this is that we don't need to kill anger, we need to kill idolatry in our lives. Because that anger feeds off of our idolatry. It feeds off of our entitlement and our pride. When those things are dealt with, when our heart isn't harboring that sinfulness and that idolatry, anger isn't going to have anything else feeding it. And it's going to wither and it's going to die without us even trying. And so to help us identify these idols so that we can kind of see how they work in our lives. Just take a moment and just look back at either something you're currently angry about or something you were angry about recently. Ask yourself, what seemed to trigger it? Was it the kids disobeying? Was it the car not working? Was it not getting enough hours at work? And then ask yourself, in that situation, what idol did I have that may have been threatened? What was happening where I felt like I was going to lose something that I wanted to hold on to or not get what I thought I deserved? then once we've kind of understood that sense of entitlement and pride that we have, we need to really understand pride. So first of all, we know that God hates pride. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the reason that we need to kill our pride is because what pride tells us is that I deserve something. There's some good thing that we feel like we deserve. But ultimately, when we realize our position before God, when we realize the depth of our sin and the almost limitless amount of crimes that we've committed against him we're gonna realize we deserve nothing it is by God's grace alone that we have any good thing in this world even those who aren't children of God any good thing in their life comes from him and we see this in James 1:17, when it talks about how all good and perfect gifts come from above they come from God and so when we realize I deserve to have absolutely nothing God can take my health he can take my family He can take my money. He can take my very life. I don't deserve any of it. Everything that I have belongs to Him and is a gift from Him. Then we're going to realize that any good thing that we do have is because God has decided to give it to us. And anything we don't have is a gift that God feels is not a good gift for us. And so when we remove our entitlement and our pride and our desires and our lusts and our wants and those things we think we need, we're going to realize all these things that that we feel entitled to, that we feel like we need to be happy, would actually be terrible for us. They They would be bad gifts from God. And sometimes that's really hard because there are situations in life, I know, that they come up, especially when it comes to sickness and death, and we think, how could this be a good thing? How could this be right? God, how could you see that this is the best situation to put me in? And it's hard, but we have to realize that God works on a much bigger scale than our individual happiness. God is working all things for good, as we see in Romans 8:28. It's not just our individual good, but the good of really the world in terms of God getting glory and God's plans coming out, and ultimately God working things out as they need to be worked out. And so this may be one of the hardest things for us, especially with our kind of prideful mindset, but... When we realize we don't deserve anything, we can then be grateful for everything we have because every single little thing is just a, a gift from a very good God. And then from there, after understanding our pride, we need to identify the idols in our life. You may have found some when you kind of thought back on some recent anger, or you may just know things in your life that you just say, man, if I were to lose these, I would be miserable. I would be devastated. God could never remove these from my life because I don't think I could trust him if he did. And so when we know those idols, here's where we can start taking solid steps in our pride as we start turning towards humility and towards trusting God more than ourselves and more than the idols in our lives. And the first thing that we need to do is, if there is an idol in our life that is causing so much problem that we are putting sin on Christ because we keep responding with anger or whatever sin, we need to get rid of that idol. In Matthew 5.30, Christ says, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In other words, Christ is saying, if you have this thing in your life that repeatedly is pulling you towards sin and tempting you and is hindering your walk with God, it's better to get rid of that thing that you think is going to bring you happiness than to jeopardize the most important thing in your life. Which is God. And so whatever it is, I'm not saying everything that causes us to sin or tempts us to sin needs to be removed from our life. But if it's something that we can't in time get over or exercise self-control in, it might just be time for that thing to go. Whether it's the TV, the smartphone, certain friends, whatever it is that's pulling us towards sin and towards disobeying God. Kill it so that we can have God instead of having that thing. Now, of course, there are some things in our life that we've discussed that we can't remove, especially things like our kids or our spouse. Just because they tempt us towards sin and anger doesn't mean we just get rid of them and everything is going to be better. Instead, what we can do is to change how it is that we think about those things. And so for a lot of people, what that is going to boil down to is saying, I don't deserve for my spouse to do anything I want. I don't deserve for my kids to do anything I want. And when we stop treating these relationships as I deserve, they need to do this for me. They should act a certain way, do a certain thing, say whatever. When we get rid of that mentality, we're going to realize that we can be very thankful for what we do have in them. We can encourage them in those things that we would like to see because we don't just become a doormat. Obviously, if You have a spouse who doesn't pick up the towel after their shower and in the past you've gotten angry and yelled at them or you've harbored bitterness or whatever. That doesn't just mean you just sit and keep letting it happen, but it will change how you interact with it. Maybe you just give up and realize, well, they did that for the 30 years before they met me. It's an ingrained habit. I'll just pick it up and that's that. Maybe it changes how you talk to them about it. Maybe it causes a conversation where you just say is there something i can do to help remind you because you leaving the towel on the floor really does bother me in whatever way god starts changing your heart and how you engage with your spouse your friends your kids whatever we're going to start seeing our responses to those things change because we are seeing them in a different light and obviously another important step is to repent of idolatry and to seek forgiveness for any sin that we've committed One, because idolatry is sin, but also our response to it is we get angry when that idolatry is being threatened. And so that's not about saying I'm sorry, but instead going to God, going to a spouse, going to whomever, and saying something like, you know, I reacted with anger because I was letting this thing be my idol. Will you forgive me? Again, not I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Because it's not about how you feel. It's about telling them that you need to be forgiven for a wrong you've done against them. And then once we've kind of got the basic stuff handled, what we can start doing is to replace our bad desires with both contentment as well as new desires. And so, like we talked about with the spouse, we can start reacting to them with gratitude and forgiveness, even if they don't ask for forgiveness, but just immediately forgiving them for whatever wrong they've done because we realize, well, God has forgiven me of so much. How can I not forgive my spouse for... Whatever it is that they may be doing that would previously make me want to be angry at them with our kids. Instead of it being about trying to survive them, we can start viewing them as people that God has given to us to grow and mature into people who aren't just good adults but are good servants of Jesus Christ who love him and can walk in repentance and obedience just like we want to if it's our job making us angry. Instead of being upset about not getting a promotion or having a boss that we don't care for or certain coworkers, instead, our desire can be reoriented towards working hard and just displaying Christ to people around us, maybe having opportunities to share the gospel. Maybe just people seeing that, yeah, that that man or woman who goes to church, I can kind of see it in how they work. But at the end of it all, I think that 1 John 5.21 really offers us the best piece of advice for if we have an idol in our life and we're not sure what to do with it, and there, all he says is, "Little children, guard yourselves from idols." Amen. And now, as we wrap this up, I understand that this may be a completely new way to understand anger and idolatry for a lot of people. It may sound weird. It may sound frustrating because we realize we're not victims of our anger. Our anger isn't something we were born with or something we learned. It's just a product of our sinful hearts. And that means that the core of who we are, our own desires, are somehow corrupt. And that's hard. And that's really going to take possibly a lot of time to get over. And we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to suddenly wake up one day and no longer have idolatry. Because on this side of heaven, unfortunately, we still have that sin nature that, that the Holy Spirit is warring with. But even though he will give us great success over it, we are still going to fail because we can't walk perfectly. But the best thing about anger if there's any good that can come from anger, is that anger just shows us where we need to rely on Christ even more. Because if there's an idol that's causing us to be angry because it's being threatened, then we see something that we need to remove from our lives and replace with Christ. And in a way, we can love that. Not that we're going to love sin or even try to sin more so that we can have more grace from God, but understanding that we're going to sin, we don't need to waste it. We don't need to waste that time where we feel anger building or when we snap at our kids or when we silently grumble about something our spouse did. Instead, we can stop and pause and say, I hate this. This is ugly. I don't want this. God, show me the idol in my life that is producing this symptom. Show me what my anger is being grown from. And when we have a heart that is moving in that direction, then what we're going to start doing is instead of trying to find satisfaction and salvation and comfort in idols, in things of the world, instead of making ourselves friends of the world, instead, we're going to realize that our true satisfaction is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. We're going to see that, unlike idols, Christ is enough. We don't need to keep adding more things on top of Christ in order to fill this hole and this emptiness that we feel in our hearts, because He is enough. We're going to realize that, unlike idols, Jesus Christ can't fail us He may not always give us what we want, but through him, we are always going to get what we need. And unlike money, he's not going to run out. Unlike that new car, he's not going to break down on us. Unlike a spouse, he's not going to sin against us. Whatever idol we have in our life, Christ is always better because he just can't fail. And then finally, unlike any idol that we turn to, Jesus Christ is our true comfort and our true refuge. Thank you for listening to Onward in the Faith. If you found this discussion about anger valuable, consider supporting me for as little as $1 every month by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith. Links to my Patreon and an article about this topic, as well as the book by Brad Bigney, are going to be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Onward in the Faith, a Christ-centered podcast for your heart and mind.